Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership bassist, vocalist, composer, and producer, A.D. Baris, best known as an original member of the Northern California-based funk and soul group, The Ninth Creation. The band released three albums between 1975 and 1979, largely flying under the radar, but charting a pair of singles. Those were Why Not Today and Let's Dance. The group, which included his brother, J.D. Burris, on lead vocals and percussion, appeared on TV's Soul Train and toured with James Brown, Confunction, The Main Ingredient, The Silvers, and The Whispers. Hampered by an illicit scandal involving the recording studio, the Ninth Creation continued to release new music well into the 1980s, as well as more recent reissues. A.D., how are you? Thank you for joining the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, thank you for that nice introduction. Uh, you left out a couple of things. Uh, one, there was um, five albums, uh, um, which include uh, Reaching for the Top album. I think you forgot that one. Um, and let's see, what else did I? Oh, and I am the founder of Night Creation. Excellent. I appreciate that. We're here to get the record straight, truth and rhythm. And... Uh... You know, I think we're going to open the eyes and ears of a lot of folks who maybe are not familiar with Ninth Creation and as funk lovers, you got to know them because uh, they are, you know, maybe not in record sales, but in quality, in my mind, right up there with some of the best. So we're going to get into that. Appreciate that. AD, where are you today? Uh, today I'm at home in Sacramento, California. Uh, I'm originally from Stockton, California. That's where the band started for Stockton, California. But I reside now in Sacramento since, uh, 89. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, I'm from Southern California. So, um, been to the Bay area. I don't know that I've ever been to Stockton though. I got to tell you. Well, I don't think it's somewhere you, it's not, 
I would say it's uh, back in the day, it was a nice place to live, but as time has went on, it's, uh, it's changed a lot, but that's how life is. But, you know, I'm never going to um, be ashamed of where I was born and raised and where Night Creation got our roots from. And that's where we're from. We're from Stockton, California, and uh, nothing to be ashamed of. Oh, uh, how far is that from like Vallejo? Uh, Vallejo, Stockton, 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. So did, did you know any of those confunction guys? We were all still to this day, the ones that are uh, still performing, uh, like Felton, uh, Michael Cooper. Those are all, we are all still good friends. You know, we kind of came up together, you know. Um, they was from Vallejo, we were from Stockton. Uh, when they went on tour down south, they went before we went. We would follow them. We went after them. That was in the uh, 70s, right before they got their big hit. And then uh, at the same time, that's when Gap Band was coming to be very popular. So we had the opportunity to all know each other. Uh, the Gap Band, which was... Uh, uh, Robert, the bass player, and of course, um, the lead singer, which is um, Charlie. Uh, what, what is his first name? I forget his first name, Charlie. Charlie Wilson, yeah, Charlie. How can I ever forget <laughs> that? And we're still good friends, yeah. Well, cool. So, we all kind of came up together. Uh, I would say both of those groups had more hits than we did, but. I will say Ninth Creation had more of our music re, or I would say artists doing our songs more than any of those guys. And that's on the record. I think we have up to now about 50 different hip hop artists who have resampled Ninth Creation music. Wow, that's fantastic. Hopefully yeah. you're getting residuals from all those, but if you are, that's fantastic. Yes, yes. You know, some of it fell through the cracks. You know how that go. But the major ones, you know, we are being taken care of. We have to go to court for a few of them, but for the most part, we, we are being taken care of. Good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah. So, you know, talking about uh, coming up in that area, AD, you know, what uh, drew you to music in the first place? I would say what drew me to music um, from what I was told from a kid, uh, that's all I thought of. Um, I can recall um, my sister and my older brother, J.D., telling me that growing up, guitars was my whole life. Even the Mickey Mouse guitar, that was my first guitar, the one with the big ears on the end. And as I started getting older, like maybe five, six it started making sense to me, the sounds of the strings. And I just fell in love with it, playing the guitar. And then plus, my dad was a minister. So, and you know, we a lot of, you would ask a lot of Black artists, that's where we grew up in the church. And that's how I started actually really getting involved because my dad was a singer, so I would play guitar behind his quartet in church. So... That was my love for music. 
And, and when and how did you move to base? Wow, that's a long story. You know, <laughs> um, I started playing guitar. How I ended up playing bass was at a football game. <laughs> I wasn't playing football at that time. You know, that was my other sport. I loved playing football. But I wasn't playing that season. And a friend of mine named Earl Clark, if you look on the Bubblegum album, his name is on there. He was a guitar player. And his band had broke up at that time. And we was at the football game. And we were together. He said, hey. I walked up to him. I said, hey, you want to start a band? And he said, yeah. And it was kind of interesting. He said, but we both play guitar. And I said, yeah. I said, but I can play the bass. That was the beginning of my time playing bass. I was in the ninth grade. And I went into jazz band, started playing, and it just became my favorite instrument, the bass. So many guys, AD, I'm sure you're aware of this, but so many started on guitar and ended up on bass, you know, in the fucking RB world. Yeah. Yeah. And to this day, it's just, I just love it. The bass is something about the bass. You know, I love guitar too, but it's just something about the bass that, just captured me and I've never turned back. I could still play the guitar, but the bass is my thing. I love it. So what was it like in the uh, Barise household with you and JD? You know, was there a sibling rivalry? Did you guys start playing together at a young age or what? No. JD was um, like seven years older than me. Hmm. He had no interest in playing he was just a singer, so he never really played instruments, but he always had a beautiful voice. And so how Ninth Creation started was like a garage band, like all the other bands, you know, and we would rehearse at the place that J.D. worked. Uh, it was called the uh, a youth center, so to speak. And how J.D. ended up getting into the band and it wasn't called night creation at that time it was called third creation soulful stress i'm sorry we started at soulful stress and so what happened one day is the lead singer at that time was not able to perform and we had a gig the next day in in uh merced it was at one of the air force bases and we was kind of, okay, what's going to happen here? We don't have a lead singer. And my brother said, hey, I can do all these songs. I can sing these songs. And I kind of looked at him like, really? Come on, J.D. And he said, no, I can sing these songs. <laughs> we got to the show, and we were all blown away. J.D., my brother, had all those songs in his head that we were doing. And that's the beginning of J.D. Barish being in Ninth Creation. So you were, that's, you were, you were like eight, how old were you? 18 or 19? He was in his mid twenties or. I was, uh, 17, 17. And J.D. was in his twenties. Yeah. Mid twenties. You know, he was married, you know, starting a family. So that's why I never looked at my brother at the beginning, you know, to sing in the band. 
But after that one show, that was the beginning of, of J.D. Barese. Now, what I like to put on the record, though, um, in regard to my brother, we were, you know, young garage band playing all the uh, top 40 tracks, you know, that was keeping you busy. That was what, you know, that's what you do. But me as a guitar player and all that time that I was playing guitar, I always would write my original songs. I always had a lot of songs that I would write. Didn't have names for them, but I would write them. My brother, when he got into the band, I would say, you know, it's, back, it's been a long time. I can't think of how long it was that he was in the band before he made a suggestion. But when he got into the band, his whole thinking was different than us. Like, we wanted to play cover tunes. My brother said, hey, we need to make our own music. We need to come up with our own record. So I want everybody to know that my brother, J.D., is the one who got us starting to play our own original songs. He... That was in his head. So I had the music. He had the voice and the lyrics. It was pretty simple. I mean, we would get into the garage and I would start writing, you know, playing a song. And JD would just start singing. I would sing background and put harmonies to it and we would come up with songs. So he would be, JD would be the one who put us on the map as recording artists. It was my brother, JD. And I want people to know that. Well, I'm glad he uh, spurred you guys on that way for sure. Yeah. Um, so with that age difference though, I imagine your tastes in music maybe were a little bit different. You know, when you were coming up, who are some of your favorite artists and bands and, and who influenced you? Now, you might laugh about this when I tell you this. But as a kid, I was into jazz. Um, Wes Montgomery was my favorite guitar player. So my mind had, was always jazz. I loved jazz. It wasn't so much the R&B music for me. Um, I'm trying to think back in the day. Of course, everybody loved James Brown. I loved his funk. So his the guitar licks and the bass licks were that was who influenced me as far as playing funk. Um, another um, back in the day, for me it was like I would listen to a lot of um, uh, as far as R and B. I would listen to a lot of Otis Redding. Um, let me see another guy that really influenced me was. James Brown was one of my biggest influences because of his music. It was just so funky. And then, then again, Otis Redding, his voice. But there's others. But those two that come to mind first. But then, like I said, um, as far as music, I was really into jazz more than R&B when I was growing up. It, I had a love for West Montgomery. So, but if you listen to Night Creation music, it has a lot of jazz R&B influence in it. Like the very first album, Bubblegum album, you listen to like um, songs like um, Suburban Blue, um, Quit It. 
and you listen to some of those songs and you go back and listen to that album, it has a lot of jazz influence. And a lot of that came from me because that's what I loved. So my bass lines were a lot of jazz influenced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. On that first record. Um, do you remember, A.D., who you first saw perform live that kind of blew your mind? James Brown. It was James Brown. It was James Brown, my older sister, who a lot of people don't know. That's who we, I started out with was my sister. She was the lead singer. She took me to my first concert to see James Brown, and I believe it was here in Sacramento, at the, uh, Sacramento Auditorium. And I believe I was like 15. That was the first time I saw a live concert. And that's when he had the big band, the two drummers, all the horn sections. And I was just like in awe. Never forget it to this day. I can remember where I was sitting in that place and the songs that he came out with. I remember the whole show. And I'm 70 years old. <laughs> yes, that's who influenced me the most was James Brown. Uh, so that first record that you already alluded to, where was the band, would you say, in terms of its, um, you know, ha had you been doing a lot of uh, shows playing original material before you went and recorded it? Or did you just go in and record it? And how did you get uh, that studio time? That was a good question. We started rehearsing original songs. Um, for almost like six months. We were playing, we would mix in, we were doing a lot of gigs. So what we were doing, we were mixing in some of our originals with some of the uh, you know, cover tunes. And people started liking our original songs more than the cover tunes. And we had, we started playing Falling in Love. And one, I, I remember we just started playing Falling in Love at one of our shows and people was asking us, who is that? Who is that? And we told them it was Night Creation. And they was asking, what can you buy the record? And we told them it wasn't out yet. So that's how that started. That's how we started. We would do the gig, save the money. And there was just the, the studio that we started recording at was called Freeway Studio. That's where the Bubblegum album was recorded. And at first, when we started, we was using our own money. You know, we was play you save the money go into the studio and we were doing like overnighters so the bubblegum album that whole album was recorded in two weeks the entire album was recorded in two weeks and but then after it came out we were doing it like everybody else we would put records in the garage pack them up you know get them uh, maybe we didn't have a distributor at that time but we had a radio station in the Bay Area. I can't recall the name of it. And they started playing the record. And the rest is history because the record just blew up, falling in love. That's when we got investors to come on and to help us with the, uh, the production of it because it was going so rapid. It was in high demand. So we ended up uh, getting a record deal. If you go back and look at the night creation of the Bubblegum album, after it blew up, we ended up signing with a company called Prelude. They came out with that same album, but they put it on a different 
album cover. I don't know if you ever seen the one that had the lips on it. Yeah, Falling in Love, uh, they called it. They called it Falling in Love, but it was the same Bubblegum album. And that's how that materialized. And then we did another record under them, which was Reaching for the Top. And that's when we kind of, we basically had, you know, record companies all behind us. We didn't have to put our own money into it. So we had a, a good run with, you know, we ended up doing Prelude. Then we ended up signing with Warner Brothers. And then we got a deal with Hilltack Records. So we had three different labels that treated us pretty well. But then the last one, we wanted out of all the contract, we want to own all our masters. That took time. But we ended up getting the chance to own all of our masters still to this day. That's awesome. That's good to hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about some tracks in that bubblegum record. And so, you know, do people, if people have the bubblegum version, is that like a collector's item or which ended up having more copies? I'm thinking Falling in Love probably actually had more press, right? When we, I would say so. Um, because it was with a major label. So, you know, of course, they're going to print more. Yeah. So I would say yes. But the Bubblegum album is the one that's classic, that cover. That's the one that everybody wants. Yeah, it's like kind yeah. of like a Tower of Power kind of vibe. Yeah. and uh, But, yeah, that's the one that's still in very high demand now. And recently, um, I don't know if I sent you the... Uh, the new album cover that I, the last and final record that we're doing, I went back in the studio and re-recorded -re Bubblegum, Rule of Mind, Falling in Love, and uh, Mellow Music, which was a single. And that's what's on the, the last album that we're doing. And that's the final, that's why I call it Full Circle. Uh, and that's going to be released uh, the first of the year. 2024. Very cool. Yeah, you sent that cover over. I appreciate it. Yeah, looking yeah. forward to that. Um, and we'll 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 pump that up again before we part. Believe me. Okay. Yeah. Um, that uh, that first record though, I, I got to uh, point out a few of my like very favorite tracks because you know if you know anything about me, I am a diehard funketeer. So okay. Uh, yeah. Um, Bubblegum, you know, the title track, that was some nasty funk. Was, was that a Moog, a Moog bass or what was going on in that? Uh, <laughs> well, I experimented. There was this thing, like, you know, back in the day, you had the Wawa, right? Well, this was called a, a Mutron. And that's what the effect was. It's not a Wawa, but it was, and back then it was called a Mutron. And so what it does, and that, on that one part, that's only use it in that one part. But if you go down that album, I think I use it in a couple other songs. But that part right there, it's not a Wawa, it's a Mutron. That's what that is on the bass. So that's what Bootsy made his bread and butter on. Yeah. Yeah, similar. Yeah, it was similar to the same type of sound. Did a longer version ever exist of that? Because it's only a couple of minutes long. No. Huh. It, it, and that song was honestly... <laughs> Goofing around, right? That song was <laughs> never supposed to be. That song was never supposed to be a, a a song, you know, because when my brother was coming up with those words, if you listen to it, and this would happen, it's kind of interesting. Rap wasn't really considered rap back then, okay? But 
when it came out, JD didn't understand what what it meant for him to get uh, credit for what he was saying on the song. Because yes, the music makes the song, but that's corny stuff that he was saying, that's what people love too. And so he ended up having to, we had to go back in when we did the uh, copyrights and had to include that in there, that he was part of the writer. And that's how that materialized. And that's how that became, okay, you can talk. And that's still being a part of a writer of a song. Because that's all he was doing in the song was talking and laughing. And it became a big hit. And that's the song. That one and Rule of Mine are the, uh, I would say, have been used more than any of our other songs, those two particular songs. Yeah, Rule of Mind, uh, that one really syncopated, jazzy funk, uh, bass lines, kick in, sax solo. Um, yeah, that's a cool track too. And, you know, some of the influences, uh, AD, and you can just tell me if I'm, you know, on the mark or not, or um, things like Falling in Love and um, Learn to Live. I mean, Earth, Wind, and Fire, I hear like definitely some of that coming through there. We did a lot of touring. We was with, we toured with Earth, Wind, and Fire for a year. When they, before, I can't remember the single they had, the very first single, but they had a female vocalist with Philip Bailey. It was Philip Bailey and a female vocalist. That's when we toured with them. So, yes, we were very much influenced by Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I'm going to have to say this. I feel Earth, Wind, and Fire was influenced by a lot of the night creation music. People don't know that. But I would never tell nobody that. But some of their songs um, that we heard them record after we toured a lot together, we said, wow, that sounded like one of the songs we did. You know, kind of that stuff like that. But yeah, all, we were just, all, the, yeah. all the bands then were sharing some of that DNA, you know, and just adding yeah. to it and changing it. That was kind of a beautiful thing, really. It was wonderful. We loved yeah. it. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. Falling in Love, this was 75. So that's, you know, I want folks to know that's when Bubblegum came out and you guys first came on with that in 75. So um, Falling in Love just reminds me a little bit of All About Love with uh, Earth, Wind, Fire. And, and um, I got to say the keyboards throughout this record really like the keys. I mean, I don't know your keyboard player on this, uh, Bill Erickson, but he did a great job. Yeah, and he was another guy um, on that first album because he was just on the first album. If you notice, a lot of his chord progressions was jazz and we kind of both you know that's kind of we were him and i were really close he's still around he's still around i think he still lives in stockton um but he was very like even if you listen to suburban blue he wrote that song as well his the way he played his chord progression was a lot of jazz influenced yeah and quit it um like some sly influence on that one. Oh yeah Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was some Sly and the Family Stone influence. And really, yes. nice, really nice horns, too, I got to say. You know, mm -hmm. horns are kicking. And you guys are just a great band. Um, Thank you. Uh, we, need, we need love. Um, yeah, just really, uh, really strong group vocals, too. You know, you had all those elements that you got to have for this music. Um, Rule of Mind, too, also heard some cool in the gang. 
influence? Like, you know, <laughs> the, the, the original Jazzy Cool in the Gang. You remember them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you remember them. Yeah. I used to, that was, they were the same way. I, I still love them, them guys. They're old music. Cause I go back and listen to some of the old stuff. And like you just mentioned, they had a lot of jazz influence on them. Yeah. Big yeah. time. Originally the Jazzy, Jazzy Axe or something like that. Before something like that. Again. Yeah. Yeah. How'd All you right. go? How and why did you go from third to ninth creation? Well, the story with that is that. After we um, decided that we weren't going to be called Soulful Struts anymore, we came up with the name Third Creation. However, when we were getting ready to come out with the record Falling in Love, there was a ragged group called Third Creation. And we had to decide, okay, and the record company told us that we can't come out with that name. Do we have any other name? And at that time, it was nine of us. Pretty simple. We're ninth creation. <laughs> and that's how that came to be about. Yeah. All those big groups back then with full horn sections. That was a fantastic thing. Yeah. Yeah. Made a touring expensive, but you know. Yeah, it did cost. <laughs> but the good thing about what we were able to do uh, with ninth creation is when we got our first major deal with Prelude, we were able to uh, sort of. Uh, we bought our own truck. So we had our own tour truck and our own tour bus. That's something that I thought that we did were pretty wide because, you know, whenever we went on tour, we were able, unless we went overseas, of course. But anytime we toured the United States, we had our own tour bus and our own uh, uh, semi for our equipment. So we bought all of that back in them times. You know, when you get a, a record deal and you get the upfront money, you know, it's pretty good money to us back then. So we were able to invest it into what we wanted, you know, our own sound system. A lot of groups weren't doing that. But that was the vision of my brother. He was saying, hey, we need to do this. And that's so when we go here, we don't have to pay for this or pay for that. So we bought all of our own equipment, our own sound system, our own trucks. We had two trucks, two semis. And for 18 years, that's how we traveled unless we went overseas. And for that first record, uh, to what extent did you get out and do shows? The first record? Yeah. Uh, they wouldn't let us stay home. We was on the road constantly with the with the first record. And it was just mainly bubblegum and falling in love. That's all they wanted to hear. <laughs> bubblegum and fall. I mean, of course, we played all the other songs. But when we played falling in love, Still to this day, well, not not playing, but uh, the memories of performing that song on stage. I can tell you some things that happened that we couldn't believe when we would. My brother would sing that part when it comes, you know, one hundred and ten on the sheets and all that type of stuff. It was unbelievable what would come up on the stage, what was thrown up on the stage. Yeah. Before Teddy Pendergrass, sounds like. <laughs> yes. All that, what he was getting, we had all of that before Teddy. We had where some of the horn players were being pulled off the stage where the security would have to come and get them to get them back on the stage. I mean, I laugh about it now, but it was hilarious. We really had, that song really 
And the reputation that we had, that is, if you go see Night Creation, you can go find a woman because that's where all the women are going to be. Hmm. If you want to get a girlfriend, go see Night Creation because that's where all the women are going to be. That's what we were known for on tour. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but hey. <laughs> so, uh, I, what what kind of uh, stage presence did JD have, and um, you know how did you uh, develop your your live show? Remember, JD was six five, and JD was an ex football player. My brother was going to go. Uh, he was in line to go to the Detroit Lions as a wide receiver, but he broke his leg in college. And and then he got married, and that was all over. But he was like six five, and then and he was like two hundred and fifty pounds. And his stage presence, he was like Barry White um, before Barry White, because that size and his voice. Uh, our stage present, you know, we all, you know, back in them days, you know, the uniforms, the earth, wind, and fire type of uniforms, the dance routines, we had all that. So our stage present show was really, uh, I would say, was really nice. We had a really nice uh, stage show. Yeah. So did you, like, rehearse a lot and try to really get it tight? And yeah, yeah. We spent a lot of, I mean, think about it. Our 20-year run, we were together. I would say we were together more than we were together more than we were with our families. Uh, JD was married. I wasn't married. You know, I was still young. I, I think he was maybe the only one. Maybe a couple other guys were married, but we all had girlfriends and stuff like that. But we were we rehearsed a lot when we were home. That's all we did was rehearse to get ready for the next record or for the next show. So we constantly rehearsed and performed. So, and we were young, so we had the energy. We loved it. And, it and you were, you, you were mostly self-producing and arranging and things like that. Yeah. 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 We had, um, we never had any outside producers except for why not today. Uh, and uh, they brought in two uh, producers from New York on that particular song, Why Not Today. That's why it's so much different than if you listen to Night Creation music because they brought in those producers. And it sounds nothing like Night Creation. We hated it, but we were forced to do it. Um, and if you listen to that song till this day, I don't even, I haven't listened to that song in years. I don't even listen to it, Why Not Today? Because it was no nothing like Night Creation. That wasn't Night Creation. AD, how did you generally come up with your bass lines? for the tracks. Hmm. It was all in the head. You know, I can, I, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I really don't know how to answer that. Uh, just to feel something you feel, you know, when you're playing or um, like even when I write songs now, uh, it's just something you feel. I, I, I guess that's the best way I can explain it for me. It's just a feeling of something that I feel that's in my head. 
would you typically do much revising or would you kind of come out of the gate with it usually or are you saying when i write a song or are you saying just playing a bass line when you write a song so these these studio tracks um you know what was your process usually in general for coming up with what would end up being the baseline on records you know what's interesting that's a great question because what's interesting about that i'm glad you asked that because say for instance like um i didn't write rule of mind and i didn't write learning to live but no one never gave me a baseline i would always come up with my own baselines Rule of mind. I came up with that baseline. Bubblegum. That's my baseline. Um, they would like Bill Erickson. He would come up with keyboard parts and he would say, AD, come give me a baseline. That's how that worked. So I would always, and if you listen to all those records, and I'm not saying this to, to build myself up, but no one ever gave me a baseline. I can't remember anyone giving me a baseline. Hey, can't play it like this. They may have said a note, but not the whole bass line that it came from me. And I'm not saying that to be um, great or anything like that, but no one never gave me a bass line. When we talked Over. about your influences, AD, you didn't mention a bass player. So you got to give us uh, one or two or whatever. Who would, <laughs> who would be your guys? Back in the day, you know, the people don't want to say it, but the king of slapping bass is Larry Graham. You, 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 we can't take it from him. He was, to me, the type of bass playing. All these guys are playing bass now with the slap bass and all that. Larry Graham. He's the man. You can't take it from him. If anyone tried to, they're wrong. <laughs> Larry Graham is the godfather of slap bass and funk. People might want to argue with that, but I like to hear their argument and tell I'm me not, who else. I'm not going to argue with you. I mean, he's still doing it right now. I mean, he can still, still doing it. do it today. Yeah, and he's, <laughs> he's a good friend of mine too. Yeah, you know, he's a very good friend. Um, but I would say when it comes to the slap bass, slapping the bass, that's who I my influence was, was Larry Graham. And not too far away, the Bay Area, you know? Yep. And we did a lot of radio station interviews together. Because um, Night Creation, he was, Grand Central Station was coming up at that time. And we would do a lot of radio interviews in the Bay Area because that's where he was from. And they would talk to, you know, him and we'd be in the other room. And so we got a great relationship, you know, back then. Frankie Beverly and Mays, uh, they was recording in the same freeway studio the same time we were recording the bubblegum album so i got to know them very well frankie beverly uh and all those guys so there's a lot of history uh of these guys other artists that we are good friends with still to this day well i think the larry graham thing is great because for the reaching for the top album you know graham central station was one of my reference points i was going to say that i felt like you guys were influenced by them especially thematically because it got like spiritual on that record and grand central station of course was spiritual and then just the whole thing of the way it starts off with kind of that revival feel and you know <laughs> i felt definitely some gcs uh vibes going through wow you you really been 
you've really been listening to, well, you can tell you've been, you know what you're talking about. You've been listening to a lot of music here. It's great. Yeah. I mean, tell, tell me about the kind of approaching that second one as sort of a theme album almost. Repeat that again. I said, tell me, uh, A.D., about sort of approaching that second album almost as a theme album, you know, with the artwork and the spirituality. And... You're talking about the Reaching for the Top album, right? Yes. And if I understood you right, you're talking about what took us in that spiritual type of thing? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, you know, growing up and, and you know, the church influence and I think it's definitely evident on this record more so than on the first one. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think at that time we were going through a transition. Let me tell you, I think what was going on, because if you that record. If I remember correctly, yeah, the uh, disco era was coming out. So we had to try to do something to keep up with the disco. But it wasn't working. And so we just went with our hearts. JD was, you know, we both came from the church and we started writing songs. If you uh, come back home, he's coming. Those are all really kind of like gospel tracks, but R&B. But the, the lyrics are really gospel. Mm -hmm. And so I guess we were just kind of like, we just said, because at that time, we know we were at the end of our... Uh, deal with prelude so we say you know what we're going to play what we want to play and that's what we did on that record we really played what we wanted to play and that's how that ended up coming out with a lot of spiritual like type of songs what about I have the, to admit, no go I'm ahead. sorry i was gonna say coming come um he's coming to me that's one of my favorite songs just the bass line and just the way it's produced i really love that song still to this day hmm. and what about some of the personnel changes what was going on with that in terms of the band members now if you go back i don't know if you heard if you go back on the soul train we did a song called skin it back that was a different drummer that wasn't donnie ray Donnie Ray came in right after that. When we were on Soul Train, he was already in the band, but we already had previously recorded Skin It Back. He was, but Donnie Ray is the original drummer on all the records. Donnie Ray Allen is the drummer. Okay. Steve Mason came in right after Bill Erickson, the keyboard player. And he stayed, and we're still together to this day, me and Steve Mason. Actually, we just did some recording uh, just recently. Uh, me and Steve Mason. We just lost Steve Rubio. If you look on there, Steve Rubio, the sax player. Yeah. We just lost him in March. Mm. Mm. Some of the tracks, and I don't know if these got any play, um, but but they're ones that I, I really like, especially on this record. Um, the Time Has Come. Um you know, I like the way I like tracks like that that maybe are slow, but they still have like a funky bass element, or you know, they still have some of that, you know, funk in there, even though they're slow. Right. Um, like I said, we were going for it on that album. We know that we we're gonna be out of the contract, so we just said, Hey, let's do what we want to do. And that's what we did. We played 
what was on our hearts on that record. Come Back Home, really cool old school ballad, um, great vocals. Um, a Good Time is a great way to close it. You know, that's a, a cool party track. All right. So after the second record, you, you did uh, Superheroes came two years later. Yeah. And yes. um, that was a big change from uh, the, you know, reaching for the top in terms of its sound and just, you know, everything about it really was way different. And you guys seemed like you were really embracing and wanting to take on all of the like funk bands of that era. I would agree. That's true. <clears throat> because we felt that we were still dealing with, at that time, we were still dealing, disco was kind of fading out a little bit. So at that, when we did Reaching for the Top album, we did, I think Let's Dance was a, the single. Yeah, Let's Dance was a single. So at that time, because I wrote that song, um, that song was kind of influenced by George Duke. Interesting. Yeah. Because if you listen to that bass line, he had a song that was called Dookie Stick. And it, that's where I kind of came up with that idea of the bass line of, uh, on uh, Let's Dance. So, yeah, we was, you know, getting back into our funk groove when we did that album. We, you know, back when we had to transition our minds and the way we were thinking to get back into what we really wanted to do, which is, you know, play funk. And that record, I think we have. Um, I got to listen to it again. I don't. Even, you, I'm gonna let you go ahead. You can tell me what you want to hear next. I will because it's a kick-ass album. Um, any Funketeer's got to have this in their collection. I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, you mentioned it's interesting that you said George Duke because that totally makes sense. But what I thought of when I heard that track uh, was Gap Band. You know, um, like Shake It and the kind of stuff they were doing early on. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And like you um, said earlier, we was taken from each other. So, yeah, that could be true, you know. But Let's Dance was, for me, because I wrote it, it was influenced by George Duke. And you even have, uh, I don't know if you remember this, there's like a Bootsy vocal reference in that song. Yep. <laughs> yes, it is. And then that's my brother, J.D. Yep. Uh, what's, what's shaking? Uh, like, a, and again, Earth, Wind & Fire, mostly instrumental, Latin rhythms going on. That was another one of my songs that I wrote. And it was kind of like jazz influence, so to speak. Great trombone yeah. solo in it. Trombone solo. Now, he's another guy, Mike Meisenheimer. He's still around. Uh, and we still, you know, he's still um, a part of, uh, you know, our, when we get ready to go and do a couple of shows, we're going to do a couple of shows in the near future um but we just making sure that everybody's together after losing the sax player because we had just finished doing some recording then he died so that kind of changed everything so we just kind of uh trying to figure out what how we're going to go about putting it together because we were right there getting ready to go out on the road again to do a couple of shows not on the road but just do a few shows and then he passed away so now we're just refiguring everything now uh, to see what we're going to do for next year 
I noticed on the previous record and this record, you had like female background vocals, but I don't see them on the credits. Were they just hanging around the studio or what was with the background singers? Which, which songs were that? I know Let's Dance had female vocalists. Yeah, also Superheroes. I know who the female vocalists were. Uh, Nat, Natalie Pierce. Um, the other singers back on, um, let me think, uh, Why Not Today, those singers were came from New York. What did they? Oh, Happy Day. Those those singers. Edwin Hawkins singers. They were the ones who were singing um, Why Not Today. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that adds some authenticity to that. Yeah, those are the singers on Why Not Today. Hmm. I'm glad I asked about that. Um, Superheroes, you know, that track, um, again, you like those rap style vocals that you mentioned and um, kind of a little bit reminded me a little a bit of like the ADC band, what they were doing at that time too, with the long stroke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. And I, I don't, I don't even think of these things until you bring them up. And I, when I think about it now, I'm like, okay. Well, this <laughs> was the first record. I mean, you had funk before, but this uh, superheroes was the first one where I thought really there was like some P funk kind of influence, you know, like mm-hmm. that more of that kind of vibe, even dookie stick that had P funk influence. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Some Rick James flavor in there a little bit. Um, and then especially on Much Too Much, I felt some slave vibe going on. Wow. Yeah. I haven't heard that name in a while. Slave. They would not. I love. I used to love Slave. Yeah. Much Too Much. That was a good song. Definitely. Yeah. You got to dust that one off. <laughs> you, you, you're taking me back now. <laughs> yeah, well, good. Um, yeah, so just great stuff on there. Um, I do it again. That's like real, like strong soul music right there. Yes. If I had it over to do again. Steve Mason wrote that song. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.